So I'm rounding up this series on leadership, um, uh, the context being that I think both in our wider political world and also uh, in, our, in church circles, in Christian circles, we've had a whole procession recently of leadership failures. And, um, and very often those failures, uh, they, they have sort of a disproportionate level of impact on people because leaders, leaders uh, have influence, don't they? A disproportionate influence sometimes. And, and so I thought it would be a good time to, to just spend a few weeks thinking about what leadership is meant to be and thinking about how we relate to it and what makes for good leadership, what makes for bad leadership. And this, this uh, morning, as I round this up, I'm going to be considering the themes of integrity and purity. We've looked at the need for leaders to be those who love the people they are leading and prepared to sacrifice for them. We've looked at the need for leaders to have the courage to speak the truth and not just tell you what you think, what they think you want to hear. Often that's a, a lack of courage, it's a lack of conviction that drives that, it's insecurity, it's a desire not to risk their status. And so they sacrifice the whole reason they've got status in order to try and keep it. Um, and, and you know in politics all the PR and spin machines that are there to try and manage the way you perceive people, well, it clearly, it, it could make you weep actually when you think about it. Leaders who have nothing to hide don't need spin. Leaders who are courageous enough and have enough conviction to believe in something, perhaps they don't need all this PR and this spin. And, and today we're going to, uh, last week Linda spoke about humility and the need for leaders to have a small view of themselves, not think of themselves, not be self-obsessed, but to not let themselves get in the way of serving the people that they're called to lead. And today I'm going to round this up with another aspect of good leadership, essential as it is, integrity and purity, the idea that our lives makes sense, that we don't develop a different persona in leadership to the private person. Years ago, I heard a man called Gerald Coates speak. I only have heard him once speak once. Some of you will know that name. And uh, I remember the first thing he said. It was words to this effect. He said, when you're in leadership, he said, you've got your public persona and your private life. And the trick is to keep those consistent. He then went to, on to give a, a talk that was the most shameless self-promotion I've ever heard from a Christian leader. But uh, putting that to one side, his first words were very impactful on me. And the more I've been in my own little area of leadership, the more I've realised the challenge of that. Because if you're in leadership, the pressure, obviously, you don't want uh, you don't want everyone sort of disliking you and writing you off. And so there's a tremendous pressure to conform who you are to the expectations of the people you're leading. And the danger is then that you end up presenting an entirely false picture of who you are. Ideally, if I'm a good leader, if you came and were a fly on the wall in my house for a week, you'd notice a basic consistency between who I am there 
and who I am when I'm exercising some kind of leadership in church. And the same is true for every form of leadership. Now, the application of what I'm saying today, coming from this passage of Jesus, is specifically within the, the sort of religious, spiritual, Christian sphere. But I think it can very easily be extended into every form of leadership we have, whether it's in the workplace, in the family, whether it's uh, in public life. Wherever you exercise or I exercise some leadership, there is this need for the whole of who we are to make sense, that we do not develop two separate personalities. That is very dangerous and almost certainly ends badly. So let's start by looking at verse 15. Now, just to point out here that Jesus is in full prophetic mode in these, word, in these, in these two little passages that we've got in front of us. And it would be good, actually, if you had a Bible in front of you, either on your phone or... So uh, Nick is helpfully handing out Bibles and ice creams, if you ask him. Um, Jesus is in full prophetic mode. Now, there are other parts of the Bible where leadership is viewed with a little bit more nuance. But as I say, Jesus is just dividing the world up into good leaders and bad leaders. And, and, and the prophetic voice is like this. It just says, come on. There's a sharp distinction here and you need to pay careful attention. And um, I'll inject a bit of nuance because I'm trying to balance it with what the rest of the Bible says. But don't miss the basic sharp, um, sharp words of Jesus that pull us up short and make us think seriously about the leadership we're exercising and the leadership influences that we allow into our lives. So look at verse 15 to start with, and it's a very simple image, very striking image. Watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. Can I have the um, presentation up, please, if that's possible, and, the, and that picture? Thank you. So a few things to say about this image. First of all, the idea of false prophets is a very common theme in the Old Testament and the New Testament. And the basic idea of a false prophet, prophet is it's somebody who speaks in God's name, but their message did not come from God. That's the basic principle. People who are claiming the authority of God, but they are not authorised by God. Their message is not from God. Secondly, and quite importantly, this metaphor only works if you recognise that you don't need to go looking for them, they are present in the flock. So what Jesus is saying here is, watch out for them. They are not running around the church with false prophet tattooed across their forehead. They look credible. But they are present even in the church. People who look like Christians, sound like Christians, know how to speak the language of Zion. They know how to sound convincing. There's nothing about them which immediately shrieks false prophets so that we can all identify them. They are disguised. That's how this metaphor works, right? They look like sheep, but they are actually spiritual predators. You don't need to seek them out. You'll, they'll come to you. And they are not obvious, therefore. They are disguised. 
they may not even be obvious to themselves. Elsewhere, when describing false teachers in the church, I think it's Peter says, they deceive others and are themselves... Actually, I think it's Jude now I say that. Shouldn't quote things from memory, should I? It's very fallible. Uh, They deceive others and are themselves deceived. Very important. In our day and age, sometimes we think that if somebody really believes what they're saying, they are authentic. It's not true. You can be authentically wrong. And so Jesus is warning us that even within the church, even claiming to be Christian leaders, there are people who are actually best understood by this metaphor of spiritual predators. And what do spiritual predators do? Well, what do wolves do? What is in their nature when in the company of sheep? They eat them. They destroy them. Now, this is a very stark metaphor, but I want to point out something to you. It's very important here. Jesus, in this particular episode, is not warning the, sheep, the, the, uh, the wolves. He's warning the sheep. We all have a responsibility to be vigilant about the spiritual influences we allow in our lives. Now, Jesus then helpfully goes on to, do, to address the next and rather obvious question of how do you tell the difference? How do you know if you're dealing with a genuine sheep or a, sheep, a wolf that's just dressed up like a sheep? And he changes the metaphor. Could I have the next slide, please? Um, and he essentially says, well, there's only two types of plant. And the two types of plant that he identifies are uh, fruitful plants that produce a crop and thorns. And um, look, I'm, I'm no gardener. I don't know the first thing about it, but I know enough to say if I was keeping a vineyard, I would want that kind of thing and not that kind of thing, right? And, and exactly what Jesus says, it's dead simple, it's not hard to understand. If you've got that kind of thing, then you are going to be very pleased and you're going to do what you can to cultivate and prune it and do what you need to do to get more and more of it. And if you've got that kind of thing, you're going to dig it up and destroy it. And Jesus says, therefore, it is the present presence of fruit or thorns that reveals who someone is and whether they are a, a wolf in sheep's clothing. So when you think about the people, maybe via the internet, in church, um, maybe books that you read uh, by Christians, and then by extension, the other leaders in your life outside of the church, does their leadership manifest fruitfulness or does it manifest thorns? When the Bible talks about fruit, most frequently it is referring to godly character. If you know your Bibles, Galatians 5, the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, and so on. I'll stop quoting it there because I'll get it wrong, but you know, the, you know the bit. Equally, thorns could be understood what Paul identifies there as the works of the flesh. Deceitfulness, dishonesty, lack of self-control, temper, um, you name it. 
But secondly, it's not only godly character that's the issue here. There's also the content of their teaching and their message. Just prior to these verses, in verses 13 and 14, Jesus has said, enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. Be wary of voices that that, that, that minimize wrongdoing. Be wary of voices that affirm things that God says are wrong. I need to be careful here because, of course, there is very central to Christianity the doctrine of grace, where we're talking about a message that comforts sinners when they are repentant with the the free offer of God's forgiveness. That's right at the heart of the gospel. But grace never says that sin isn't sin, that sin doesn't matter. There are voices in the churches right now telling people that they are that God's good with things that he used apparently to be opposed to. Be careful of the internet intellectual gymnastics that people go through to affirm things that for 2000 years Christians have been not affirming. What is the content of, a, of somebody's message? The false prophets of the Old Testament just used to tell people, don't worry about your sins, everything's cushy. The real prophets, they often got rejected because their message was hard. If there is no challenge in a message from a Christian leader, be suspicious. And finally, what is the effect of their leadership? What do you see in the communities around them? Is this leader creating a greater and greater focus on themselves? Or are they actually content to fade from the picture and allow others to emerge as long as the name of Jesus is lifted high? Okay. Well, if that wasn't enough, Jesus then goes on to address, I think, all of us who are Christians, particularly those who exercise some kind of Christian ministry, and he says this, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Here, Jesus says, essentially, anyone can say the right things. But just saying the right things about God is is not enough. And there are people he is warning here. Could I have the next slide, please? Um, There are people who who he is warning here think they're okay and they're not. I'm going to try and talk clearly. And there are leaders who think they are serving God and they are not. It's a serious warning, right? So words are cheap, seems to me to be the heading for these three verses. And indeed, to some extent, ministry is cheap. 
Now, let me be clear before we start. There's a couple of things here that Jesus is not saying. He is not saying it is bad to publicly profess that Jesus is Lord. He's not saying that. Now, that's what we do in baptism. And it seems to me, Paul, in fact, said, if you want to be, if you want to be saved, if you want to be on the right side of God, if you want to be given a future and a hope and be part of the new creation, there's two things you've got to do. You've got to trust in Jesus in your heart and you've got to profess it with your mouth. And a great way to start professing it is to be baptised. The name is on the front of the church. We're a Baptist church. If you have not been baptised as a believer, as an adult, our very strong conviction is and our invitation to you is to come and be baptised. And uh, if you'd like to speak to me or to Tim about that after the service, we would love to speak with you. Promise not to pressure you at all, but we would be very happy to discuss it with you. So a profession of faith, that's a good thing. And secondly, Jesus is not saying signs and wonders are a bad thing. He is not saying here that miracles are bad. Or, in fact, Jesus did all of those things, didn't he? He did heal people. He did prophesy. He did uh, drive out demons. He's not saying these things are bad. What he is saying is that a profession of faith or even supernatural miracles in the absence of heartfelt devotion to him and genuine transforming faith and trust and love for him is meaningless. Does that make sense? Is that clear? He's not saying they're bad things. He's just saying they are not enough. They are not the test of whether somebody is a genuine Christian and they are not the test of whether someone is genuinely exercising godly leadership. Now that's a challenge. It's a challenge to people who think, I can just live my life how I want and God will kind of forgive me. That is not Christian doctrine, that is heresy. And if that is where you are, these words are a stark warning to you. Jesus isn't fooled. You know, I've got two kids, and if they said to me, I can do whatever I like, Dad, you're my dad, you'll just have to accept me, that's not going to fly well. And ultimately, that would entirely corrupt our relationship if they carried on with that belief. If you're saying to God, I know you want me to treat people well, I know you want me to be obedient, but I don't care because you've promised to forgive me, so I'm just going to live however I want then these words are a challenge to you. What does Jesus conclude with? Away from me, you evildoers. Serious. That is not saving faith. You are deluding yourself if that's what you think makes you a Christian. A Christian is somebody, of course, who, who fails in lots of ways, but whose basic disposition is if God says it, I'll do it, and if I fail, I'll repent. Secondly, these words are a challenge to ministers or leaders or Christian leaders who think, look at the results of my ministry. I must be authentic because people are coming to faith. There was a guy in America whose name was, name was Mike Wonky. He had a very prominent ministry at one point. 
He'd written a book claiming he'd been converted from Satanism to Christianity. He then reinvented himself as a Christian comedian. Lots of people had come to faith under his ministry. And then he was investigated by two Christian journalists called Hertenstein and Trott. And they found, firstly, that the whole story about his previous Satanism was a fabrication. And secondly, they found that the huge amount of money that he had raised, supposedly for survivors of satanic ritual abuse, was all being spent furbishing his house to a very high standard. They exposed him. He'd written a book called Selling, uh, uh, The Satan Seller, and they entitled their book Selling Satan. And a few weeks before they were going to go to him and, and publish, a few weeks before they were going to publish the book, they went to him and said, we're going to publish this book gave him a copy and said, we're giving you a few weeks to come out publicly and repent before we do it. Do you know what his argument was? You mustn't do it. He couldn't argue the facts because the facts were there for all to see. He said, you mustn't do it because lots of people came to faith through me and you might destroy their faith. Hmm, what do you think about that? The results are meaningless. They do not validate your ministry. What validates your ministry is authentic relationship with Jesus Christ. Otherwise, it counts for nothing. Paul says to the Galatian Christians, it's, a, it's an interesting letter, he's trying to get them focused on what really matters, which is the reception of transforming grace into your heart by virtue of relationship with Jesus. And he says this, he says, the only thing that matters is faith expressing itself in love. And then later in the, in, in the letter, he says, the only thing that matters is new creation. Now, it does seem that's two things, right? Uh, but they're basically the same thing. What he's talking about is, has Christ transformed our hearts? That's a question for every disciple. That is the question for every Christian leader. And that, in the end, is all that matters. If Christ is transforming our hearts, then all will be well. But if he hasn't, nothing else matters. All right. So how do we evaluate leaders? If we are leaders, how do we evaluate ourselves? Next slide, please. Do I have the next slide, please? Yeah, great. Immaturity, and we see this a lot in the church, we see it a lot in wider culture, is folks saying, I want perfect leaders. And uh, you see this quite a lot, that people latch on to leaders with immature kind of faith in them. And then when they spot that they're not number five, they immediately reject them as number one. You know, all the, all the leaders you're going to have in your life, in the church and out of it, are imperfect people. And, um, and their leadership will, of course, be somewhere on that spectrum. But we need to be able to handle the fact that leaders are not perfect without entirely rejecting all forms of leadership. Because actually... Part of you growing up into a mature Christian person is learning to work with the leaders that God has put in your life. 
So you need to be careful, even as Jesus is warning us to watch out for false prophets, you need to be careful that you don't get into a space where you see yourself as the great evaluator of leaders. A basic disposition of respect for Christian leaders is right according to the Bible, and a basic trust and, uh, and respect for them. However, having said that, leaders very commonly fail in all sorts of ways. Richard Foster wrote, uh, uh, wrote a book some years ago called Money, Sex and Power, highlighting that these are the three ways that leaders tend to, uh, to fall away with a private life that doesn't match their public persona. That either in the realm of money or in the realm of sex or in the realm of power, and these things kind of bleed into each other, of course, they can go astray. So what are the warning signs? What are the thorns that you should be looking out for as you think about the influences you allow into your life, both in the church and beyond the church? And if you're exercising leadership, what are the warning signs you should look out for in your own life? Because we're, we're primarily called to evaluate ourselves, aren't we? Well, here's a few things that you might want to be looking out for, I think, from experience. Leaders sometimes haven't conquered their own vanity. I, had a, uh, I worked with a, a senior minister uh, quite a long time ago who loved a mirror. I remember we used to pray together at another of the leadership team's house and this leader had, this other guy had a, had a wall-to-wall mirror in, in one of the rooms that we used to meet to pray. And, and this guy I was referring to initially, if you talk to him in that room, I'm not joking, he wouldn't look at you, he'd be looking at himself in the mirror while he was talking to you. I remember at one point I almost said it. I wish I had really. I wish I'd had the guts because it needs to be said. I wish I'd said, shall I leave you two together? <laughs> um, I sometimes joked, be careful of leaders whose hair and teeth are too perfect. Now, I should declare, a, I should declare an interest, right? Neither my hair nor my teeth are perfect. But be careful of people who are too concerned with their appearance. It's general, I mean, of course, if the house needs painting, paint it. But, uh, um, <laughs> and there's nothing wrong with being presentable. But be careful if they're overly concerned about that. Vanity. How about flattery? Weak leaders learn a little technique for keeping people on board, and that is they flatter them. Um, it's a very tempting technique for any leader. If you get the distinct impression that somebody is saying nice things about you that aren't strictly true, be wary. Flattery, incidentally, if you're a leader, is a form of lying. Do not praise things that are not praiseworthy. That's dishonorable. And you have to ask yourself why you're tempted to do it. Thirdly, what is the salary or lifestyle of this leader? Now, in the church, I want to be clear about something. 
if somebody is earning huge amounts of money by virtue of preaching the gospel, that is flat out wrong. It's wrong in any culture. It's wrong in any place. You are following Jesus. Now, it's equally not right for churches to impoverish their ministers. But it is not right for Christian leaders to earn huge pots of money. And you should be suspicious of any leader who is. It's not right. Fourthly, be very wary of Christian leaders who draw attention to themselves. Be very wary of any Christian leader in whose publicity their face is emblazoned all over it. Be wary of Christian leaders who push themselves forward as if they're the answer to every ministerial vacancy or ministry vacancy there is in the church. Be very wary of ministers who are only interested in big things and big people. If you are a leader, just think about who you give your time to and what you give your time to. If you visit a church, watch the leaders and who they give their time to after the service. Is this, has this leader got a radical, a clear, a clear commitment to honesty? Will they speak the truth even when it might cost them personally to do so? Would you prefer a leader who told you the truth or one that flatters you? In the book Lord of the Rings, which I quote all the time because it, I think it's a great book, when the hobbits meet Aragorn, forgive me if you don't know the, the thing, right? They, it, you'll get the point anyway. When the hobbits meet Aragorn, they're unsure about whether he's a good guy or a bad guy. And Frodo says, I think if he were a servant of the enemy, he would seem fairer, but feel fouler. His appearance would be fairer, but the underlying aftertaste would not be so good. Strider then jokes back, or Aragorn as he is saying, so I must appear foul, but feel fair. How do you, what, what about these influences that you allow in your life via the internet? The books that you read, the Christian books you read? the high-profile Christians that you give allegiance to? How do, they, how do they do on this grapes and thorns test? What's the, what's the fruit of their ministry? Do they speak the truth? Do they hold to the teaching of the Bible? Or do they find ways to, to leave you comfortable in sin? Do they preach God's grace? Or do they tell you you've just got to kind of buck your ideas up? Is the content of their message authentic? What's their personal life like? How to be a good leader. This is what you should look for in leaders. This is what should be present in your life if you are a leader. First of all, the spiritual disciplines. Bible, prayer, Christian fellowship. Nobody's above these things. And if you are in leadership, you need them even more. Look for a leader who clearly is committed to those and if you are a leader renew your commitment to them 
Secondly, does this person make themselves accountable to others? Or do they kind of send out signals that they're not accountable? Thirdly, do they chase, are you chasing character or are you chasing success? A godly leader, first and foremost, sets their own character and sets the culture of whatever organization they're in in a godly direction. Results will then follow. Are these three characteristics present? Courage, love, and humility. And does this leader, and are you if you're in leadership, are you self-aware? Do you know your weaknesses and your strengths? Do you compensate for them? Do you invite people in who are strong in areas that you are weak? Or do you have to be superhuman? It's how to be a good leader. How do you relate well to leaders? Well, to answer that question, I was thinking about how I'd want people to relate to me in the church, and then you can apply it more widely. As a, as a small-scale Christian leader, this is what I would like. And if you're going to relate in a mature way to leadership, this is what I, how I think you need to relate. First of all, I would like you to love me as a brother in Christ, first and foremost. Secondly, I would like you to pray for me. Because I'm trying to, everyone who's in leadership of any kind, you're doing an impossible job. So I need prayer. Thirdly, I would like you to tell me the truth. Now, I don't mean by that, that if my tie was not the right colour for my shirt, that you feel that you have to tell me that. I mean, do if you want to, but I'll ignore you. Um, uh, but if something is out of kilter, or you think it is, if you don't tell me, how are you expecting me to put it right? I'm asking you to tell me the truth. I'm also asking that if I say sorry to you, and this would be true of all leaders, right? If a leader says sorry to you, I'm hoping you'll forgive me, not hold it against me forever. And in particular to the leadership team of this church, I'm hoping that you'll hold me to account. And actually, if my behavior gets seriously out of kilter, you'll discipline me. Because I'd much rather you discipline me than the Lord did. Because he can be quite severe. This is what we need. I want, my, I want your encouragement when I'm doing well. And I want your rebuke when I'm not. And if we get that right, then we'll, we'll breed good leaders, right? May God, in this church in your life, give us godly leaders producing fruit. If you are a leader, you've been given a great opportunity to exercise influence for God. Do it well, but keep yourself in check. Let's relate to leaders in a mature fashion. Pray for them, love them, speak the truth to them. May God unleash all the leadership among us that he wants to so that we can have a real impact for him. God bless you.